while. Now let's get serious. If you want to open your Bibles up, please, to 1 John. You should, your Bible should be getting like almost falling to that place by now. We've been in there for maybe three months or so. And we're in chapter 3, and we're going to be finishing up possibly today, chapter 3. It's 1 John, chapter 3, and we'll be specifically looking at verses 19 to 24. I can never get used to these things. I'm just always getting caught up in wires and falling off my ear, and, but hopefully we'll get through it. Okay. Anyway, let's start with prayer, please. Father, I pray now we would continue to worship you. Lord, we love you, and Lord, we look to you, Lord, for our life, for the hope of eternal life, Lord, and just every day, Lord, to, uh, we look to you for strength, Lord, to do what is right and good in your eyes. Lord, may you take your word now, and Lord, with the Holy Spirit, might you apply it to our hearts, Lord, that it would not just be heard, but it would get deep within our system, and we would apply that to our lives with your help, Lord. We ask you to bless this time, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> this morning, we're going to talk about a topic that is not always talked about, I don't think, enough, and that's assurance. The topic of assurance, the doctrine that says we have the forgiveness of sins, and with that comes eternal life. I wonder how many of you right here, how many of us right here, are absolutely certain that you are going to heaven. That there is absolutely no doubt in your mind that when the lights go out for the last time, you will be looking at the face of Jesus Christ and he will be smiling at you. You'll be in his kingdom. Unfortunately, I believe there are a lot of even Christians. I mean, you ask the average person, I hope so. I hope so. But I've heard Christians say that as well. I hope I'm going to heaven. And that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible makes it so clear that when you are saved, if you are truly saved, if you have been regenerated, you have been born again by the Spirit of God, your sins have been forgiven, and you have the gift of eternal life. Now, think about it. Eternal life means it's eternal. And eternal life doesn't start when you die. It starts the moment you become a child of God, where you are adopted into his kingdom. Eternal life begins at that moment. And if it's eternal, 
Doesn't that mean it goes on forever? Eternal life isn't for a period of time, then it wouldn't be, it would be temporary life. But this, this whole issue of this, there are many Christians who sometimes struggle with that. And look, we all have doubt. We're, we're human beings. I bet you everyone here has come to the point at some place and said, I hope it's real. I think every single person here has for a moment maybe had, or a question, if you don't even want to call it doubt, you'd question, is it true? Just, it might be just for a moment, but we do that. We're human beings, and that's part of that nature that we have, to question or to be skeptical or to doubt sometimes. And then hopefully as you reason through it and you go back to the facts. Because our faith is not a blind faith, is it? It's a faith that's based upon facts. The fact, the true facts that Jesus Christ did live. That Jesus Christ did go to the cross for our sins. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. And we have the testimony in the Bible, the testimony of men, eyewitness accounts that tell us. How about this, this book that we're reading right now of John, this letter of John? How does he start it off? He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim, he says. We know what a, the, the power of an eyewitness in a courtroom has. God says this is true. Every word in this book is inspired by God, we're told that. They're God-breathed words, we're told in Timothy, by that. And yet we still struggle at times, don't we? You know, we have those moments but we have to go back to the fact of the truth and hold on to the truth. And that's what we're called to do. Let me read just these verses quickly and then I'll try to break them down for you. Verse 19. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and we receive from him anything we ask, because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Now let's start by looking at verse 19. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth. Stop. Okay. This then, what's this? And we go back 
and let's look and see what this then, or because of this. We could also say, because of this, we know that we belong to the truth, or this then is how we know we belong to the truth. Go back a couple verses. Let's look at verse 16 to 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. We spent last week looking at that verse carefully, that the love that God calls us to is not just a word service, is not just, oh, I really feel for you. You know, I feel you. I can feel it. You know, I feel with you. That's okay to have that. But John says what? And John speaking the words of God says, do something. Don't just talk about it. You have material goods. You can help somebody. Do it. You, can, you know, sometimes the things we can do for people are the, the hardest thing for us is to give up our time. You know, we'd rather sometimes write a, a $50 check to a missionary and say, okay, I did, you know, I, I, my conscience is, is, is salved right now because I just supported a ministry. And I'm not putting that down. I think you know that. But I'm trying to make the point that it's easier to write a check sometimes than it is to say, okay, tonight I'm going to get up from the television or from the computer and I'm going to go out and I'm going to help somebody. Or maybe I'm going to visit somebody. Or I'm going to do something to help at the church. Or I'm going Our time is precious, and I understand that. But those are important things. And John is saying it's action. We looked at a whole week with the word agape. It's a love that acts. It's a, it's a love directed by the will. It's an act of our will to go and do. And it's a self-sacrificing love. And that's the love that God calls us for, that agape type of love, that godly type of love. And John says here, he says, this then, referring to a loving our brothers and sisters in a sacrificial way, he says, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth. Remember, there was a false way also being preached in that church. There were those false teachers and people bought into it and left the church. He says, but this is how we know that we belong to the truth. Because you see it. You see, what did Jesus say? He said, how do you tell a tree? He said, a tree is known by its fruit or it's recognized by its fruit. How is a Christian identified? Because I once said, I want to accept Jesus. Is that enough? No. There has to be a trail after that of a changed life. I, I, I emphasize that. I, I probably get redundant with you on it, but if you're a Christian, you have to have a changed life. Not a, a fake kind of outward, you know, phony kind of holiness. But love, John says, that's the mark of a Christian. That's the series that I've been talking about for three weeks. It's love that marks the Christian. Jesus said, he said, they will know 
You're my disciples. By what? By the love you have for one another, he said. He says, you must love one another, in fact. He says, that's required. And it's not a forced love. It's a love that comes from inside, from a changed heart. That's the difference. Our hearts have to be changed. And John says at this point, he says, this is how we know we belong to the truth because there's a trail or a manifestation in our life of love. That's the mark of a Christian. It's not how much necessarily you, you write money for, although that's an act of love. And maybe you're at the point in your life where all you can do is pray and write a check. Then you know what? God honors that, and that's an act of love for you. But if you're able to do more, he says, do something for one another, love one another, meet those needs. He says, but that's how we know we belong to the truth, he said. It's Christianity being lived out, actual, actually being lived out, not just talk, he says, that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. Sometimes as Christians, we can be, I think, a little too hard on ourselves when we do see those flaws, when we see sin happening. Have you ever find you find yourself in a sinful thought or a, all of a sudden you're speaking to somebody in a wrong way or you're driving maybe with, with hate in your heart toward the person in front of you who just cut you off and made you break and slow down where you almost had an accident? or such an anger like that. And sometimes we can look and maybe you say, how can I, how can I be a Christian and, and act this way? You know, well, when you feel that way, go read Romans 7. The Apostle Paul telling his experience of it. And sometimes I know people will, there is a camp that will say, well, when Paul talks about Romans 7, that was before he was a Christian. I find that hard to believe that when in verse 22 he says, in my mind or in my inner being, I delight in the law of God. I don't know one person who's a pagan who delights in God's law. The only time you love God's law is when you're a child of God. That's the mark of a Christian too. A love for God and a love for his word. You love his word. You want to obey his word like that. And John says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth, that we are a Christian. He says, even when, he says, uh, we, we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our heart condemns us. When he says uh, we, we uh, set our hearts at rest in his presence, what is he talking about? Prayer, when we get quiet before the Lord. He's not talking about, you know, when, we're fine, when we go before the Lord there and the reason we can kind of check that out is if you go down to verse 22 he says uh, in actually verse 21 I'm sorry verse 21 he says dear friends if our hearts do not condemn us we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask okay again he's referring to prayer here when we're before God and we're making supplications we're making requests to God he says, but he says, so we set our hearts at rest in his presence. And you know what? That's, there's a, that to me is a, is a great, uh, how can I put it? 
is a great, another great reason to have quiet times. Because you will find when you get quiet before God, that's when you start to really examine your thoughts and your heart, see? And you know why? Lots of times I know people say, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I just, I really don't have time to get quiet some days. I'll tell you what. I think we always have time for five minutes of quiet in a day. I don't care how busy you are. And no matter where you are, to just withdraw and get in a quiet place, even if it has to be behind the wheel of your car, but shut the radio off. You know, and just like, because there's, there's, there's something about when we get still and quiet, we get in touch with who we really are. We start to hear our thoughts. We start to hear God's voice. And you know what? I, I believe that one reason people stay busy is because we don't, we don't like the silence. We would rather have some kind of stimulation all the time, whether it's a television on in the house all the time or the radio on or the phone or whatever it might be. Because when we get quiet, it can be disturbing at times. If you really get quiet before God and you just sit, I, I say just sit for five minutes in silence. See with your mind where it starts to go and you start to really you start to see what your heart is like. God starts to show you. And you know what? It's uncomfortable at times. You know, the truth is Larry Crabb said this, uh, Dr. Larry Crabb, a Christian psychologist, a long time ago. He said it's frightening when we come to the reality that all we have is God. He said there's something so comforting about that. There is that we have God. That's a comfort but it also makes us uncomfortable because he is so holy and we're not. And when we, when we sit before God, even in silence, that brings it out in us as we start to see our sin, we start to see God's holiness, but that's what we need. But what John is saying here is that our, we can set our hearts at rest. In fact, the King James on that verse says, and hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. We're assured. We have assurance before him that we are, earlier he says, of the truth. See, there's, there's a part of us, our conscience is made to, to really, you know, bring accusation against us and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, our conscience is made to stir us up. That's what it's there for. You know, to show us. But sometimes, you know, our conscience can keep going to the point where we have to also rest to know that our sins are forgiven. They've been forgiven. As long as they're repented, you know, we need to repent. Otherwise, we break that fellowship with God. I'm not talking about salvation at this point. I'm talking about breaking our fellowship with God. Okay, because if you have been saved, you're saved. You know, but we can still hurt our fellowship with God with the way we live. And here, so John is saying that we can set our hearts at rest in his presence that we can know we're saved. We can be assured that we are of the truth, that we are God's child in spite of at times, you know, and look why he says why. 
for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. How many times do you have good intentions and it just doesn't come out the way it's supposed to? You know, you want to, you want, I want this to be right. I want this to be good. I want this and that. And then all of a sudden it gets like messy and, or you, I'm going to go to this person and I'm going to make this right with them and stuff. And you end up getting into a bigger argument and break up. And your intention really was, I wanted to do this. John says, God is greater than your heart. God also knows all the missed times, the missed times that we mess up, but maybe our heart was in toward the right place. Now, I'm not making excuses for us. Sometimes our hearts are not right, and we need to repent of that. But there are times where we can be, our conscience can be oversensitive, and we also start to question. Do you have a question if, if you're a Christian? I don't know if you've ever done it. You don't have to shake your head yes or no, but... Uh, I bet you everyone here at one point thought, how can I be a Christian? These thoughts I just had. Wow, where is this from? Or where? I always, I, I always like when you know sometimes we'll think something or do something and we're like shocked and go, I can't believe I did that. Really? Look at your heart. Of course, it's coming from your heart. Of course, you're being, you're being deep down in there. What's still in there? That's why, but we get, we get like appalled. I can't believe I did this. Uh, God's going, believe it. You're a sinner. Repent and get right with me. But anyway, so anyway, John here is just trying to assure Christians that when you're before God and your conscience is, is bothering you about things and you're questioning whether or not, am I a Christian? Am I of the truth? Go back and look, is there love in your life? And that's what he's saying. This then is how we know we are of the truth. You look and you say, is my life a trail of constant sin and, and hurting people? And this? Or is my life have a, a, a pattern of loving? And he's saying that's how you reassure yourself. And God reassure you. Look at the fruit, what's happening. And that's a good marker for us. We, need to, we, we should constantly be examining our hearts. We really should. Not, not being neurotic, but I know I, I have to review the day. During the day, I'll, I'll review myself and ask myself, you know, is that, why, was I, why did I do that? Or that wasn't right. My motive here wasn't right, Lord. And I, and I repent at that. And we move on. But John is trying to let us know, as Christians, we, we can be sure that we are of the truth, he's saying. Yeah, we mess up sometimes. But again, is there that manifestation of love in your life to show the fruit? A tree, Jesus said, you can recognize a tree by its fruit. If there's good fruit following your life, John says, the Bible, God says, okay, you're on the right path here. You're on the path of truth. But if you have all kinds of broken relationships and fighting and, and all kinds of things that you're doing that are wrong. You need, to, you need to look at that then and get it right. Okay. Uh, he says, whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. And we, I already said about that, that we need to look at that and, and say, God knows your heart. And at times, you know, someone once said that 
being a Christian, you know, Paul used that phrase, we have this treasure in jaws of clay. You know, we have the gospel. The truth of the gospel lives within us. God's spirit lives within us. But we have this treasure in jaws of clay. Someone once used the illustration. They said, Christian who, someone who's been born again is kind of like a concert piano player. There's this perfection of, of ability there. And it's that it's Christ in us. But you take that concert piano player and put him at a broken down piano in some bar, and all that, it doesn't come out quite the same as a perfect instrument. You know, our body is a body of sin. You know, our flesh is sinful. And we live in that, this, this treasure, Christ in us, is in this jar of clay. So it doesn't, even when the intentions are right sometimes, it doesn't quite get the same music that uh, would come out. One day, when we have the glorified body, then we're going to be like you know a 12-foot grand piano, perfectly tuned, and all our intentions will come out that way. But right now, you know, some of the notes come out sour, even when you're trying to do good. So let's see what, verse 21. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. He says, if your conscience is clear here before God, he says, then, he says, our hearts don't condemn us. We have confidence before God. You know, the Bible is filled with that. Do you come before God with confidence, knowing that you're his child? Do you have, not, not an arrogance, you know, but a confidence that you are his child, that he loves you, you know, we're told to come boldly before the throne of grace like that. In, uh, I wrote it down. Ephesians 3.12, Paul says, In him, through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. We can approach God. Imagine the holy God, the creator of the universe, the perfect one, the all-powerful, all-knowing, unchanging God, we can come before him with freedom and confidence. Like that. But now, this is where we'd like to put a period in this sentence. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask. How do you like a period right there? There's a comma. But how would you like a period there? He gives us anything we ask. You know, there it is. You know, there it is. Just ask God for whatever you want. He says it right here. <laughs> I don't think so. What does he say? He says, and receive from him anything we ask because. Oh, there's the because. They just went, you know, we had a access to the vending machine to just keep pulling, you know, and keep getting all those treats all day. Uh, no, it's not that easy. He says, because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Big difference, isn't there? We obey his commands. Now, think about, at one time, the word obedience, I don't know, that would, the idea of you will obey or you will listen 
Don't you want to obey God? Don't you find that isn't your goal to please your Father in heaven? That should be, if as Christians, that should be, I want to please God. And you know what's amazing? I know God has made me do things in my life to humble myself by convicting me of the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm just thinking back. I remember once, this is many years ago, back in the, the 90s, I guess, early 90s, I was working for a uniform company, delivery, and we deliver rugs. And there was one guy, his name was Donnie, and he was at, I won't he was at a, a chain of places. And he gave me back the rug one day because we'd rent the rugs out and back in the uniforms and all that. And it was all sliced up. It was like somebody was cutting something over it and sliced it. And I said, Donnie, I said, I said, what did you do to the rug? It's all sliced with a razor. He says, I didn't do nothing. <laughs> you know, he was a tough guy too, a little tough guy. And I said, Donnie, I, I said, and... And I got into an argument with him about it. And I was, I was angry because this guy before, months before, always gave me such trouble with the uniforms. He'd, it was a truck shop. Everybody's full of grease and filthy. And he'd get his shirts, but, you know, if there was like a little spot on the shirt, he'd go, I don't want this stuff. And he'd make the company bring him back shirts and stuff. In the meantime, by the end of the day, you know, it's... it's it's, you know, you're full of grease. But anyway, so in my heart, I was angry at this guy. I never let go of that. And when I saw that rug, anyway, turns out about a week later, the rugs that we had, they were defective. And there were other rugs that were doing the same thing. And I remember God saying to me, you need to go back to Donnie and apologize. Oh, and I'm telling you, I was, I mean, I basically, when I heard God say that, I was like, oh, it was one of those, oh, you know, that's where, no, don't make me do this, please. I don't like the guy. He's going to really clobber me anyway when I, even if I go, I went back and I went up to his desk and I said, Donnie, I have to talk to you. And he jumped up. I, he was like, you know, he was a fiery little guy. And he went, you know, like this. And I said, I need to apologize to you. Not because of my job, I said, but because from one human being to another, I said, I was wrong. And his face changed. And after that, we were like friends. But sometimes God makes us do things. But when we obey him, I got back in the truck and I cried like a baby. <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. I got back in my truck and for a minute I just, oh, Lord, thank you. You know, it was like the relief came off of me. I was harboring anger at this guy. Every time I went in there, it was like, I can't stand this guy. I, ooh. You know, and I was looking to get him and boy, did I get a smack in the head from that. You know, it was like taking the rug, and God took the rug, and I gave me a couple swats. I said, what are you doing? Don't blame this guy. I was looking for anything to nail this guy. And you know what? When I obeyed God, the peace and a joy in my heart 
doing the one thing I never wanted to do. When we obey God, there is a joy and a peace there that is amazing. I know Mike Stolacci and I lots of times have shared phone calls during the day about witnessing. And Mike sometimes, will, 6 o'clock in the morning, say, bro, you're going to believe it. He says, that, that God who's a Muslim, he says, I had a chance to share the gospel with him. He says, I'm like, and he was like, you know, I could feel him bouncing up and down, you know, when he's talking to me on the phone. And then he said, you know why? Because we're doing what God wants us to do. When we obey God, we do what he wants us to do. And why does he want us to obey him? Because we have joy. We have peace like that. Okay, I got a little bit off here, but let's go back. Okay, not too far off, though. Come on. Okay, anyway. So he says, and if we ask God because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Well, think about that. When we, when we are obeying God and doing what pleases him, what are we going to ask him for in prayer? His will. And you know what? We don't change God's mind in prayer. Don't ever think that we can change God's will by prayer. What does prayer do? It conforms us to the will of God, ultimately. When we pray, it conforms us. God is sovereign. His will is perfect and sovereign. We say His perfect will. So by me saying, Lord, you need to change this, I guess His will isn't perfect. And i got to correct Him and say, Lord, no, you, you need to do this here. No. But when we pray God's will, it's because we're obeying him and we're doing what he commands and what pleases him. And we benefit from it in the end. He changes us and we get the joy of that. Verse 23, And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to do, and, I'm sorry, and to love one another as he commanded us. This is God's command to us. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. If you want, would you go to me to John 6? The Gospel of John, chapter 6. I mean, I've been up here for 25 minutes doing everything. You've got to do something now. You've got to find the scripture. Come on. <laughs> this is a joint adventure here. <laughs> I don't always like working alone. Yeah. Okay. Okay, look at John chapter 6. And this is where Jesus had fed the crowd of 5,000. He took couple fish and a couple crummy loaves of bread and he fed 5,000 except the 5,000 were in reality probably 10 or 15,000 because John is only talking in that culture they only mentioned the men but there were women and children also so they could have been up to 15,000 Jesus feeds them with like a handful of food the people are amazed and they're following him and he finally, in fact, and says even they wanted to make him king by force in the beginning of the chapter. It says Jesus withdrew to a quiet place. Isn't that amazing? Jesus 
We struggle to find a quiet place, we say. Jesus would always make time in his crazy schedule all day and night to get with the Father. Even if it meant him spending the night, it would say, with the Father, praying. But anyway, they find him, and now Jesus kind of calls it to them because they're following him, not because of, that mir- of the miracle of seeing when Jesus he declares, I'm the bread of life. But no, they're following because their bellies are full. They like getting bread and fish. You know, we like, everybody likes a free lunch, you know. And so it says in verse 25 of chapter 6, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your full. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. The most important work we can do is faith in Christ. He says, just put your faith in me. He says, don't try to do all these other things. It's faith in Christ. Jesus says, that's the work. He says, right there, the work of God is this. He says, to believe in the one he sent, to believe in him. Now, go to John 15. Same book. John 15. You know what? I'm sorry. I mean John 13. John 13. Sorry. Verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must. That word is pretty powerful, isn't it? So you must. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. So you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I know you've been hearing me hammer that for the last three weeks or so. But that is the gist of what a Christian is. Faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, you want a definition of a Christian? Look at verse 23. And this is his command, to believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded. There, in a sense, is a definition of a Christian. It's one whose faith is in Jesus Christ. And it's manifested It's proven and shown by the love that they have for others. He says, and to love one another as he commanded us. These are not suggestions. This is Christ's command to us. And I bet you you've read these verses over and over again. And I've been been harping on this, but I'm going to harp on it again. We know a lot but we keep 
wanting to get, we get more excited about learning something new. We need to apply what we know. We need to live it. I know I've been saying this every week, and I'm sure you're getting maybe tired of me saying it. But it is so important because I, I, I have the privilege lately of, of these past months of preaching to a group that is so knowledgeable. I know most of you pretty well. You guys have a lot of knowledge. You really do. Many of you are well-informed Christians in the Bible. But my question to you, and I'm not questioning you know, whether or not you do, but I'm going to ask you to question yourself. Do you do what you know? Do you obey what you know? When Jesus says, this is my command to love one another, is your life lacking in love? And we go back to the beginning, and John says, what's the assurance we have? of eternal life, the manifestation of love. He says, you know how you can know that you have eternal salvation? The manifestation of love for your brothers and sisters, he says, that there's a trail of love there. They're basically he's saying love gives you assurance. Love also gives you answered prayers. What we looked at. Because when you love God, you're going to obey God. You know, that's the greatest thing. We can, we can obey somebody. You know what? It, it's, it's always the illustration of, of the corporal, you know, who is above his, the privates and he's ordering them and they're going, yes, sir. And they're showing him all that respect. And yet in their heart, they're going, we ever get on the battlefield, he gets a bullet in the head. You know, that obedience doesn't mean anything. But the obedience God is talking about is obedience out of love for him. That's what we have to ask ourselves. Do we obey? And there are times when we need to obey even when we don't maybe feel that love. That's where the true test comes in, doesn't it? Sometimes what, when God wanted me to go back and apologize to that man, Donnie, I didn't want to couldn't stand the guy. I'm ashamed to say that. I couldn't stand him. He was so nasty to me. You know, and I'm being honest with you. You know, I'm not going to lie. But afterwards, you know what? I like that guy. We were okay. You know, we, I mean, we weren't, you know, biffs like that. You know, best friends forever. You know, unless he's a Christian, maybe he becomes a Christian. We'll be best friends forever in heaven. I don't know. But at least it was just, you know, it wasn't that. But it was just that. I, I liked him afterwards because God removed the, the anger in my heart toward him so that I could love him. He didn't need to do anything. I needed to change. And that's what God does. He's in the change business like that. But anyway, uh, I'm going to get ready to, to close this. I want to just, there were things I wanted to talk about assurance that I never got to today. And. John here is assuring Christians that when they get before him that sometimes our consciences will really question us. Are you really saved? Are you really God's child? Do you really have eternal life? I mean, look at what you do sometimes. And then John says, go back. Look at your overall life. Did your life change? Did it go from a life of selfishness? 
to a life of sacrificial love. He says, then rest with that. Rest with that. He goes, and I want to just read you a couple, a couple verses here that uh, really drive the mark home that if you are saved, you're eternally saved. Eternal life means forever. Don't ever question that. It's a doctrine that comes straight from the Bible. It's not something that somebody made up and say, this will give Christians a, a, a better feeling. And you know what happens? If you know you are eternally saved, I find there is a tremendous peace in me. That issue is called, the issue of death and what happens afterwards, that's, that's gone. Yeah, we might worry about how we're going to die, you know, I don't, I don't want to be tortured or I'd rather not go through a painful illness. But if that's God's plan and his will, that's what it is. You still know when it's over, I'm with him. That's, that's what gives us peace and joy. That in the midst of even bad things, I know what the ending is. It's like when you read the book of Revelation. You go through the Bible, you know, and it's like, oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Then you read, you read the last two chapters, and you read about heaven. And it's like God comes back and straightens everything out, and we are part of his kingdom. That's a fact. That's what we hold on to. But that should give a tremendous peace and joy in us when we know that. I don't know how you could... There are denominations that, don't, that are Wesleyan Arminian. I was originally in a, in a denomination when I was saved that believed that you could lose your salvation. That if you got into sin, you could possibly lose your salvation. I always, my biggest fear is, and I think I said this once, you know, I'm driving along and somebody does the most horrible thing and cuts in front of me and makes an obscene gesture and for that moment I go, I can't stand it, and then I have a heart attack and die. That means I go to hell. I've, I've, I've tried to live my life for God, but I had a moment there of a Romans 7 moment where, you know, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me, Paul says. You know, and that's a terrible way to live. And I used to wonder about that. The, the Reformed, the Reformed theology says you are saved forever. It's eternal life. In fact, I'm going to read a couple verses, and that's how we'll close on this today. And I just want to read the last verse here, 24. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. There's an internal testimony of the Holy Spirit within us. God says in Romans 5, 5, and God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The reason we know it confirms to us is because God has poured out his love into our hearts. That's how we know. But next week we'll look at the Holy Spirit. Let me end with a couple verses here. And I just want to remind you of something. When Paul says in, in Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He'll carry it on to completion. God, the, the life that started, you start with your eternal life, 
And the life of sanctification continues right into eternal life. He will carry it to completion, he says. I'm going to read you something here from 1 Peter. My mind is racing too much right now. I can't, can't remember my <laughs> verses, so memorize them. So, okay, I'm going to just read them off. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. That's a certain or a sure hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into, listen to this, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That's eternal life. That says it's forever I have a couple more verses but you know what I'm going to end with this one in Romans chapter 8 I'll just read three verses here and we're done I'm going to read you Romans 8 verse 35 who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. He says, who shall separate? We're part of Christ. He says, who's going to separate us? Now, verse 38. For I am convinced, okay, it's, it's settled. I know this, Paul is saying. I'm convinced, I'm sure, that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, the universe, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us from that relationship with Christ which gives us eternal life it's already done it's sure in fact when Paul earlier on I think in verse 31 he says you know those who were justified were glorified he says they were glorified in other words it's like it's a done deal already we're already in glory he says it's as good as done you know I lied to you. I'm going to read you one more because I think it would be a good way to, uh, to end this. This is Paul at the end of his life. He's, Paul is just about ready to be executed. At any moment, the, the swordsmen could come in and take him outside. Paul, it's believed that he was decapitated. And Paul is ready, waiting for his executioner. And he writes to Timothy... In chapter 2, here. And let me just give you the verse here in verse 18. Paul says this, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. He, doesn't, he said he's, going, he's talking spiritually here. He knows he's going to be executed. But he says, 
He's going to bring me from every evil attack. He's talking in the spiritual realm here and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Paul says, I know I'm going to heaven. I have no doubt about it. He says, I'm going to be brought there. He says, even though my life is ended here, now real life begins. I hope you have peace in your heart about the issue of eternal life. I hope you have assurance because when you don't, you can have that peace and joy that's part of it. God wants us, how can I put it? He wants us first and foremost to be holy. Okay, I'm not saying God wants us to be happy. That's not the message. No, the message is God wants us to be holy. But in that holy life he calls us to, we can have peace and we can have real joy. Not that superficial happiness, you know, that tickles our emotions at the moment and stuff. And those are nice to have, but they don't last. He wants us to have a joy that is eternal with him. Rest. Rest in what God's word says and believe it. It's true. Let's, let's uh, if you would, everyone would rise. We're going to sing the doxology and then I'll close. And, you know, sometimes I like to end the service with a benediction that, uh, comes from the book of Numbers. It's from chapter 6. It's Aaron, the high priest, was given by God to Moses. God, he got it. Moses got it from God, and Moses gave it to God. And he said, when you pray, where I, I just want to take one moment, just because we say these words, but think about the depth of them. He says, the Lord bless you and keep you. Think about what the opposite of that would be. The Lord curse you and just send you away. No, he says, the Lord bless you and keep you. Then he says, the Lord make his face shine upon you. I've said it before that the highest goal that a Jew had was to one day be able to see the face of God because that would mean he would be right in that closeness of God and it, his, his, the, the Shekinah would be shining. And he says, that his face shine upon you, he says, and, give you, and, and be, give you peace. And he says, the Lord turn his face toward you. Think about what the opposite of that means. If God was to turn his face away from us. Have you ever said this or had somebody say to you, I can't even look at you right now. Just go away, I can't look at you. But think when somebody turns their face toward you, they want to look at you. They want to be with you. They're interested in you. Like that. And that, it says, may the Lord turn his face toward you and what? Give you peace. And in that prayer is grace and peace. That he be gracious and that his peace be with you. Think of the New Testament when the books of the New Testament open. How many times do we hear grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We as God's children, even in the Old Testament, the grace and peace of God is the blessing that we get from having a relationship with Him.
that forever relationship. Let's sing the doxology and then we'll I'll give the uh, benediction. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And all God's people said, Amen.